17th century French physicist and theologian Blaise Pascal once said, not only do we not know God except through Jesus Christ, we do not even know ourselves except through Jesus Christ. This life is a precious gift that we've been given. And just to be clear, it is a gift. Life on this earth is not a right that is owed to us. It's not guaranteed, and by the way, it's not something that was ever meant to bring you ultimate satisfaction. Do you know that? This life, this life was never meant to satisfy you. And yet at the same time, every single one of us is searching for, of course, yearning for satisfaction and fulfillment, which sounds like a, a great dilemma. And that's exactly what it is, which is why there is another life, a life after this life, that is guaranteed to those who are in Christ, a life that is promised and will provide the ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment that every single one of us is looking for. Now, of course, if you're a Christian, you probably already know all of that, which is what makes it all the more perplexing that so many of us Christians today continue to search in this life for something that can only be found in the next. Because this world is not our home. It's not meant to be. Which is why the author of Hebrews wrote here, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Hebrews 13, 14. Listen, this world in its present state is a temporary location that we're living in. So the idea that you can somehow live your best life now, that's a cruel joke. Right? You're telling me this is as good as it gets? <laughs> no way. Listen, I don't care how good your life is. No matter how good it may be, it will never be as good as what's coming next for those who are in Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Philippians 1.21, because no matter how good this may be, listen, what's coming next is infinitely better. So does that mean then we should all just resign ourselves to a life of misery and disappointment while we're here on this earth? Of course not. No, there certainly is joy and love and a type of fulfillment and satisfaction to be had in the here and now. Yes, but the point is all of that is merely a dim reflection of what is to come. And so as good or as difficult as this life may be, we have a hope for the future that cannot be dimmed by anything in this world. That's what Paul meant when he said, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Listen, the point is, yes, we should make the most of this life without a doubt. But the reason we make the most out of this life is because of the life that is yet to come. And the only way to make the most out of this life is through Jesus Christ. As Pascal said, there's no understanding of God, of this life, or even of ourselves apart from Christ. Oswald Chambers said it this way, the man or woman who does not know God demands an infinite satisfaction from other human beings which they cannot give. And in the case of the man, he becomes tyrannical and cruel. 
It springs from this one thing. The human heart must have satisfaction, but there's only one being who can satisfy the last abyss of the human heart, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, through Christ, we can live this life to our absolute potential, knowing that no matter what happens along the way, we have a future hope, a future life that this life pales in comparison to. Honestly, it's a win-win when, you focus, uh, when your focus is on what is yet to come because everything you experience now, the good and the bad, well, it's then understood and seen as serving that end, the life that comes after this life. But listen, listen, if you live this life like this is all that there is, which I believe is what most Christians do today, then yeah, you're going to struggle your entire lifetime on this planet with dissatisfaction and unmet expectations and even hopelessness at points along the way as you progressively realize that not everything you desire in this life is going to be fulfilled in this life. It's not, which we should actually, actually we should be okay with that because this life was never meant to satisfy us. But we tend to not be okay with that, not most of us. We, we despair over needs in this life that can only be met in the next. So look, the, the truth of the matter is for most of us, when we're unhappy or feeling unfulfilled, we don't actually need our lives to change. We need our perspective to change. It's what we're gonna see in the life of Ruth as we continue our sermon series, working our way through her story where Ruth had more reason to despair, given her life up to this point, than anyone else in the story. And yet she understood that her life wasn't just about her. In fact, it was about something much bigger than her, something that she was simply one part of. She was a very important part of it, mind you, but a part of something bigger than just her personal needs and immediate desires in this life. Now listen, the same thing can be said of you. Your life is one part of a much larger story. It's a very important part of that story, but it's only one part of something that transcends your personal needs and desires at any given point along the way. And once you gain that perspective and begin to live this life for what it is, a temporary journey on the way to ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment for all of eternity, well then your perspective on this life changes drastically which will in turn drastically change everything else about how you live this life, about how you treat other people, about how you treat yourself, about how you treat everything that has been given to you when you understand that it's all a gift. It's all a gift that you're supposed to give away during the very short time that you're here, knowing that the satisfaction and fulfillment you're looking for, that all comes later after this life. I'm telling you, once you get that, this life takes on a whole new meaning and what satisfies and fulfills you will actually change because this life was never meant to satisfy you anyway. Only Jesus can do that. Yet most of us live as if the meaning of this life is our personal satisfaction and fulfillment while we're here. And listen, the great irony in that is the fact that as long as your focus in this life is on your own satisfaction and fulfillment, then you will never be satisfied or fulfilled because true satisfaction and fulfillment can only be found in someone who transcends this world and our brief time in it, and that is, of course, Jesus Christ alone. 
You see, the meaning of life is not this life. It's the next. It's being redeemed from this life for a better life. And that eternal, which is what the story of Ruth is actually all about, as she represents so powerfully the very picture of every one of us who were lost in this life without any hope beyond it until someone came along and saved us. Yet it's Ruth's perspective about her life all along the way that's so remarkable and what we stand to learn so much from about the true meaning of this life. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last week at Ruth chapter three and see what she has to teach us about the meaning of this life and how that should affect the way we're living it. We'll begin with the first five verses. Ruth three, one through five. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, then it may be well with you. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. She replied, all that you say, I will do. So as the scene opens here, Naomi suggests to Ruth that there may be a way for her to find a better life for herself, and therefore, of course, by default for Naomi as well, because she's Ruth's mother-in-law. Remember, life for a childless widow like Ruth in ancient Palestine was precarious at best, typically without much hope for a future, but Ruth has developed a warm friendship with Boaz while laboring in his fields. And you'll remember from last week, if you were here, that Naomi had pointed out to Ruth that Boaz was a close relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech, which means Boaz was the family redeemer or kinsman. It's the ancient Hebrew word ga'al, which meant Boaz was much more than just a family relation. He was one of the leaders of the family who was able to redeem another from their clan who'd been widowed, which was according to the Leveret marriage laws of ancient Hebrew culture, which said if a woman's husband died before she could bear children by him, then it was the duty, actually the requirement of the dead man's brother or one of the kinsmen redeemers to bear children by her in order to continue the dead brother's line, which again is stipulated in the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 25, about five through 10, effectively redeeming the family line that would otherwise be lost by a childless widow. And obviously, Naomi understands all of that. So when she says to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? Naomi is referring specifically to marriage with Boaz, between Boaz and Ruth. In fact, the word rest that Naomi uses here is the same Hebrew word she uses back in chapter one, verse nine, when she's encouraging both Ruth and Orpah, her sister, to return to their families in Moab. And you'll remember she said, the Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. She's saying, go back home and find rest, Manawak in the Hebrew. In other words, go back to Moab and make a home for yourselves by finding husbands. It's the same phrase she uses here with Ruth. She's actually proposing the idea of marriage to Ruth for her and Boaz. So it's, it's apparently a plan Naomi had no doubt been working on for some time now as Boaz continues to show noticeable kindness and affection toward Ruth throughout the harvesting season. And so now as that season is winding down, Naomi seizes the opportunity to share her plan with Ruth because she knows that for the first time since the harvest began, 
Boaz is about to be alone because the next phase of the harvest season was winnowing. That was the process where they separated the grain from the husks or the holes of the plants, otherwise known as chaff. So the grain was first crushed, which separated it from the now empty holes, and yet at that point it was still all mixed up in the same pile together on the threshing floor. So the farmer would then toss the wheat and chaff into the air, one scoop at a time, and since the holes, the the chaff was lighter than the grain, the wind would blow the chaff away, which was an effective way of separating the wheat from the chaff. But it was also time consuming, and so to speed the process up, the farmers would do their winnowing at night because that's when the westerly winds would pick up, and since the threshing floor was located to the east of the city, the westerly winds were the most effective in carrying the chaff away. And because the threshing floors were located outside of the villages and cities, they were vulnerable to thieves at night. And so the farmers, after finishing, uh, finishing their winnowing for the evening, they would commonly sleep right there on the threshing floor against the mound of grain in order to protect their harvest. And of course, Naomi knew all of that. So she devises a plan for Ruth to approach Boaz at night when he's all alone at just the right time after he's finished eating and drinking, she says, and laid down for the night. In other words, after he's relaxed and in good spirits. And then she tells Ruth to do something that uh, probably sounds strange to us. She says, go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. In that culture, this was a gesture that was understood as an act of total and utter submission. This would be Ruth saying to Boaz in no uncertain terms, I am offering myself, my entire life to you. Everything that I have, all that I am, I offer to you. It's a beautiful foreshadowing of the relationship between Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, and every human soul who would ever offer themselves to him in complete submission. And yet just as beautiful is Ruth's humble response to Naomi's instructions. All that you say, I will do. It's as if in that moment, Ruth understood that her entire life, listen, all of the hardship and struggle and uncertainty, even the rejection that she faced at times along the way, it was all learning, it was all experience, it was all growth that was preparing her for a whole new life that she was about to embark upon. Even this moment where Naomi tells Ruth to wash therefore and anoint yourself, That's what people did in antiquity to prepare themselves for a life-changing event, as we see in Exodus 2.5, also 29.4. It's what they did to prepare for the consummation of marriage, which we see in 2 Samuel 11.2. And it's also what people did to end their time of mourning, as we see with King David in 2 Samuel 12.20, and of course with Ruth here in our story. You see, Ruth's entire life, the meaning behind all of it, ultimately was to prepare her for a new life, and it's the same for you and I today. This life is meant to prepare you for the next. Well, but how, right? How do we prepare in this life for eternity? Well, the answer is expressed perfectly in Ruth's response to Naomi. All that you say, I will do. Okay, Naomi represents the word of God here. She's preparing Ruth for her Redeemer, and Ruth's response is exactly how we are to respond to God's word today. You understand, God has given us his own words written down as holy scriptures, not just to help us navigate this life, but to prepare us for the next. 
How? By teaching us how to follow him, how to worship him, how to serve him, how to glorify him, how to be like him. All things that we will all be doing, by the way, for all of eternity. That's why trying to modify, by the way, or modernize God's word to somehow better fit our modern culture and popular cultural sensibilities is so patently ridiculous. Yet we treat God's word like it's nothing more than a commentary on the best practices for human behavior in contemporary society. No. God's word is the very knowledge of the almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, eternal, immutable, holy, righteous, just creator of the universe who was and is and is to come, which he breathed out of himself, endowing us with his own sacred words. Why? So that you and I could know him personally to teach us how to be in a relationship with him because that's what we're going to be doing for the rest of eternity after this life. Yet we've decided in much of the modern church that the holy word of God that he exhaled for us so that we could know him. We've decided that it's okay to reinterpret his words to mean something different, something more in line with the political and moral leanings of modern culture. It's the very height of arrogance to believe it's okay to change his word to fit our lives instead of changing our lives to fit his word. You see, there's only one appropriate response to his word. It's not keeping the parts we like and rejecting the parts we don't like. It's not to modify it to fit our personal preferences or to try and update the parts we deem as no longer relevant. No, there's only one appropriate response to this holy, sacred word of God, and that response is, all that you say, I will do. Yet that very response has become offensive to many, even in the church today. Although the reality is it's not actually a problem exclusive to the modern church. Peter warned the church in the first century. He said, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. See, when it came to the word of God, Peter wasn't pulling any punches, but why so harsh, Peter? Well, it's because of what's at stake, namely the church itself. Because as soon as we begin following many different versions of the gospel within the church, that's the moment we begin to fracture, which is precisely what we see happening in the American church today. Listen, the church was never meant to be a melting pot of ideas and alternate gospels where it's safe or okay to manipulate the message of Christ until it fits our personal preferences or the inclinations of popular culture in any given point in history. But that's exactly what's happening in many elements of the church today. Bible scholar David Garland wrote, the danger of Christianity becoming an amalgam of various beliefs and practices is always real as the intellectual and spiritual fashions of the day exert their influence. Scottish Bible scholar James Stewart uh, once described what was happening in much of the modern church. He said, it's a vague theism. 
plus a liberal humanist picture of Jesus, plus a dash of Judaic legalism, the whole being compounded with a certain culture consciousness, a considerable infusion of humanitarian benevolence, and perhaps even a secularizing of the kingdom of God. Listen, people are making up all kinds of new rules about which parts of the gospel apply to us today and which parts do not. And if you don't follow their new take on the gospel as far as they're concerned, you're disqualified from the true church because you're nothing more than a narrow-minded, bigoted, intolerant, arrogant simpleton who will wither away into the wrong side of history, forgotten and irrelevant. Okay, so let's get this straight. After 16 centuries of biblical orthodoxy guiding the church of Jesus Christ. We've now decided it's time for our doctrine and theology to change based on the social and political moorings of popular culture in the West. It's ludicrous. This is the reality that's facing the American church today and it's going to continue to spread as long as our culture continues down the path it's currently on because much of the church has its roots firmly embedded in popular culture rather than in the word of God. Now look, it's okay to feel the tension that God's word can create in your life. I wrestle deeply with certain passages of scripture. Some of them keep me up at night. But at the end of the day, there's only one response to his word that is going to prepare you for the rest of eternity. And that response is, all that you say, I will do. Pastor and author Jack Wellman once said, Jesus is the head of the church. He expects his body to cooperate. Let's keep reading, verses 6 through 13. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? She answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask from all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So Ruth honors her word to obey Naomi's words, her instructions on how to approach Boaz as she goes down to the threshing floor and watches from the shadows as Boaz eats and drinks his fill. Uh, the phrase, and his heart was merry, was an ancient Hebrew idiom, a common saying that described the state of well-being, even euphoria by those who had eaten and drunk well. And so Boaz, no doubt satisfied with a good day's work, with a belly full of good food, and not in a drunken stupor, but certainly feeling the effects of the wine, he lays down and drifts into a deep sleep. And so Ruth comes to him quietly and lays down as she softly uncovers his feet, and at midnight, probably due to the cool night air on his uncovered feet, Boaz was startled. The Hebrew word literally means to tremble, which may have meant he was shivering from the cold, so he wakes up only to find this woman lying there. Bible scholar Daniel Block says, given the spiritual climate and the period of the judges, 
An average Israelite might have welcomed the night visit of a woman interpreting her presence as an offer of sexual favors, but not so Boaz. Interestingly, in the ancient Aramaic translation of the book of Ruth, it's called the Targum Ruth, it expounds, uh, expands this encounter between Ruth and Boaz. It says, but he restrained his desire and did not approach her, just as Joseph the righteous did who refused to approach the Egyptian woman, the wife of his master, just as Paltiel Barlaish the pious did, who placed a sword between himself and Michael, daughter of Saul, wife of David, whom he refused to reproach. So Boaz, once again showing his godly character, does not violate Ruth, but rather accepts from her what amounts to a proposal of marriage, which is extraordinary when you consider the fact that Ruth is a lowly servant and Boaz is the master. Ruth is an uninvited visitor. Boaz is in his own domain. Listen, at this time period, Ruth being a woman and Boaz being a man, Ruth is a foreigner, Boaz an Israelite, and yet she says to him, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. To spread your wings over someone in common Hebrew usage, it was a euphemistic idiom for marriage. It was a picture of marriage. It's seen all throughout the Old Testament scripture, and furthermore, the gesture of a man covering a woman with his garment was a symbolic act in ancient Near Eastern custom. It signified the establishment of a new relationship and the declaration of a husband to provide for his future wife. This is Ruth offering herself, all of herself, her heart, her dreams, her mind, her body, her future, her entire life, everything to Boaz. It's a shocking turn of events. For Ruth to do what she did would have been so counter to the culture at that time for a lowly servant, a foreign widowed woman, poor without anything to offer but herself, to come to this rich, powerful Israelite man and do what she did. No one would have understood it, and yet it's, it's a truly bold and beautiful picture of exactly what we're supposed to do, to come to Christ with nothing to offer but ourselves, so unqualified, so undeserving, and yet offer ourselves, our very lives, to him. You see, this life is meant to be your offering to God. This life on earth was never meant to satisfy you, it was meant to satisfy him. Yet one of the wonderful benefits of satisfying God by offering your life to him is the fact that that offering is the most satisfying thing you could ever do for yourself. So yes, there is self-satisfaction involved, but that's not the point. The meaning of this life is not your personal fulfillment. It's his. It's why his will, which we find in his word, is what we should base every single decision in this life on rather than our personal feelings and desires. I know we agree with that in theory, but in practice, I think we tend to actually live much differently. So many of us, we, we spend our lives, even as believers, primarily focused on ourselves, believing that once we've lifted ourselves to a certain standard of living or a certain level of self-gratification, then we can give something meaningful to God out of our excess. By doing so, achieve some kind of healthy balance in our lives, a balance between giving to God and taking care of ourselves, as, as if those two things are mutually exclusive. 
Of course, for most people, we never actually attain to whatever that level for us is, that standard. We think we need to be happy, to be satisfied in order to give God what we know we should, so we just keep on striving for more. All the while, we're focused whether we realize it or not on ourselves, and left unchecked, living that way becomes an insatiable drive toward consumption, an appetite for self-satisfaction, which, by the way, at the end of the day, actually produces the opposite in us. This is a truth that would be good for you to learn and remember if you don't know it. The constant pursuit of self ultimately produces self-loathing, dissatisfaction with life, and deep-seated feelings of unfulfillment. That's why so many materially successful people take their own lives. The constant pursuit of self ultimately produces self-loathing. This idea that we can consume our way to satisfaction and fulfillment is a hollow promise. It is a soulless pursuit that leaves people broken, dysfunctional, burned out, and disillusioned with their lives. That's why Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Acts 20, 35, because we're more blessed, we're more satisfied when we give than when we receive, which is antithetical, of course, to the humanistic philosophies of this world, and yet that's exactly what our culture, even our church culture, is shoving down our throats, that being satisfied means having enough to ensure that there's never any want in our lives. That it's desirable to never lack anything. We've been taught that from the time we were children, that it's a good thing to never have any want any need in your life, that somehow we're being foolish when we intentionally risk our comfort and security and the comfort and security of our families by giving everything to God. We just talked about this not long ago, that it's negligent to not earn as much as possible or amass as much as we can, that somehow we're less caring toward our loved ones if we intentionally do anything that may put our safety or their safety at risk. Yet inherently, as Christians, I think we know that that is wrong. I think we know deep down that God created us for something bigger than ourselves, something bigger than what we've settled for and tried to convince others is right. Because listen, we we willingly and often enthusiastically not only applaud, but we financially support young missionary families with small children who move into extremely dangerous parts of the world where they can be killed just for sharing the gospel. Now you tell me, why would we fund, why would we pay for people's unimaginable irresponsibility if we really believed that putting your family at risk for the sake of God's calling on your life was unimaginably irresponsible? We wouldn't. We wouldn't do that. No, the fact is we write entire books and make movies about people who become martyrs as they live out their purpose to the fullest. We celebrate people who turn down comfortable and safe lives in order to work in the slums of the world, giving their entire lives to helping the most vulnerable among us. We call those people heroes, giants of the faith because of the sacrifices they make and the results we see from their lives. Why? Because I think deep down we know that living with that kind of abandon for God is the most fulfilling life we could ever live, even though so many of us are unwilling to actually live that way. 
Those are the kind of lives that we often only dream about, lives that seem so far from the reality of our own, and so we make excuses for ourselves because we believe that we don't have the background or the skills or the resources or the qualifications to achieve the extraordinary. Well, listen, Ruth didn't have the background or the skills or the resources or the qualifications to achieve great things for God either. In fact, the only thing that Ruth had was herself. So that's what she offered. You know what, it turns out that's all God needs to accomplish great things in your life. He simply asks you to stop trying to satisfy yourself with your own life and instead focus on satisfying him by offering your life to him. All that you have, all that you are to him and then he takes care of the rest. Which by the way happens to be the most satisfying life you could ever live. The one spent not trying to satisfy yourself. Henry Blackaby said he, Jesus, has a right to interrupt your life. He's Lord. When you accepted him as Lord, you gave him the right to help himself to your life anytime he wants. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 14 to the end of the chapter. So she lay down at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Can you see how when Ruth offers herself to Boaz, how immediately she's blessed and provided for? That's how it works. You want satisfaction in this life? Then give your life away. And you will be blessed and provided for. Ruth comes back to Naomi, tells her everything that happened, and Naomi says, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Can you imagine the sense of anticipation that Ruth and Naomi must have felt? There was a promise from Boaz, and yet also a stipulation because there was another relative who was a closer relation to the family than Boaz, which meant, according to the Leverett laws, that other, that other relative had the uh, sort of first right of refusal, if you will, when it came to marrying Ruth. So it's not a done deal. Naomi and Ruth had to wait to see how the matter would turn out. And unlike Boaz, uh, who they have a strong, close working relationship with at this point, they know his character, they understand his integrity. We don't know how well, if at all, they knew this other relative. So the anticipation must have been off the charts, all consuming as Ruth waits for this whole new life of hers to begin with nothing more she can do but wait for Boaz to come and get her. B.B. Warfield once said, our faith itself, though it be the bond of our union with Christ through which we receive all his blessings, is not our savior. We have but one savior, and that one savior is Jesus Christ our Lord. Nothing that we are and nothing that we can do enters into the slightest measure into the ground of our acceptance with God. Jesus did it all. 
There was nothing more for Ruth to do but to offer herself to Boaz and then wait with great anticipation for him to come to her. Which again is, is the very picture of how it should be for us. This life is meant to be lived in anticipation of the next. In fact, we should be consumed with anticipation for the life that is coming after this life. To the point that everything we do in this life is done in consideration of the next. Now, don't live for today. No. Live for what is coming why Jesus said do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also Matthew 6 19 through 21 the fact is this world is not your home which means every single Christian should be homesick in this world, but not of it. Always living in anticipation of what is to come. Which, listen, when you live like that, it affects every part of your life in the here and now because you're no longer looking to this world to make you happy or satisfied or fulfilled. And I'm just telling you, it makes for a much more enjoyable experience on this planet once you realize this isn't your ultimate destination. But look, if you live like this life is all there is, which again I believe many Christians do today, then you're going to struggle your entire lifetime on this earth with dissatisfaction and unmet expectations and even hopelessness at points along the way as you progressively realize that not everything you desire in this life is going to be fulfilled in this life. Because it's not. So look, the truth of the matter is, for most of us, when we're unhappy or feeling unfulfilled, most of the time we don't actually need our lives to change. We need our perspective to change. We need to take our focus off of ourselves and off of this life, understanding that this life was never meant to satisfy you anyway. Only Jesus can do that. When you get that settled within yourself, you'll begin living with great anticipation of the next life in his presence for all of eternity. And in point of fact, you'll enjoy this life all the more knowing that your time here is merely preparing you for what comes next. Which, by the way, makes it easy to give everything you have and all that you are to him while you're here because that's where all of this ends up anyway. You being with him forever. And that, that is the meaning of life. Let's pray.